0: Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. Turn your Bibles to the Book of Isaiah. We're in chapter 37. And if if you remember from a couple weeks ago, what was going on, you know, there's this. Uh, there was always this thing hanging over the head of Jerusalem. And of the people of Judah, that the Assyrians were going to come and they were going to attack. They were going to take them over because they were supposed to be a vassal state. And they had decided, Hezekiah decided, I'm not going to give you any, any tribute anymore. And he had aligned himself with some of the other nations around him, attempted to get some protection, didn't happen. And finally what we have is Assyria has invaded, taken out all of the surrounding cities that had, were supposed to be the buffer zones and the king of assyria is crushing judah at this point and he's standing outside of jerusalem and he sends his officials to parley to to talk he decides it must be it might be better for them to surrender than for us to destroy the city kill a bunch of people i lose a lot of men it just made more a lot more sense to try to get them to surrender Because, believe me, everyone knew at that time that no one could stand against this invading force. The Assyrian army was ruthless. Their military was focused on one thing, and that's total domination. Now, archaeologists today have have unearthed a lot of artwork, a lot of things that uh, they've unearthed that, that depicts some of the things that the Assyrian army did When they conquer, because when when people would come back and they'd tell the stories, the army would come back and tell stories, artists would make these these stone cuttings of what was going on. And usually what they would do is they would impale the enemies that they caught and they killed on stakes. Why did you do that? Because if there's anybody else around, that was a way of saying, look, if you don't don't do what we tell you, you're going to end up like this. A lot of times they'd cut off heads and they'd leave them in piles around the body, or piles of bodies around, they leave the heads there. They were basically the Nazis of their time. There were a total of 46 cities that were around Jerusalem that had been buffer zones, that had been completely destroyed. And now the army was at the doorstep of Jerusalem. We, we saw in chapter 36 that Sennacherib sent his officials, uh, Hezekiah sent his officials, but he had given them strict orders, do not Respond. No matter what they say, do not say a single word. And they were silent. They knew better than to disobey their king, Hezekiah. So the officials, the Judah officials, they were silent. They did as he commanded. And then now Eliakim and his team have returned. They've ripped their clothes because. They are in so much grief over what's going to happen. They know that there's nothing they can do. And they inform Hezekiah of these words that Rabshakah, the official of Sennacherib, had given them. So the question is, how does Hezekiah respond? I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of the political things going on recently, especially recently in the last couple years. And we've got a lot of turmoil going on in the world, and we always wonder, how are we going to respond? How is, how is the president going to respond to this? And there are different ways we can, they can, the president could do that. The president could, could sit there and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just not say anything, which sometimes for most presidents is better that they don't. They don't understand how far-reaching their words have an effect on everything from the economy to, the, to everybody's, how we feel about things. Or they could be, have bravado and they could, you could pound their chest. Or they can be actually reticent and be, and be kind, which doesn't normally happen. Normally the presidents either don't say anything or they beat their chest. So what's Hezekiah going to do? How is he going to respond? Is he going to gather the army? And is he going to make a stand? I mean, that's obviously that's what most people would do most kings would do. I'm going to, you know, they're, they're coming after me. I think I better go ahead and I better just try to at least defend ourselves. I mean, we've been talking a good show this whole time. Why don't we why don't we actually live up to it? But what is he going to do? Hezekiah is going to do something that probably is going to surprise most people. He's going to actually turn to God. He does the only thing he knows that he can do. We see it in Isaiah 37, starting with verse 1. It says, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, what does he do? He tears his clothes. I can imagine a lot of that happened during that day in Jerusalem. A lot of weeping Tearing your clothes for, Jew, for in the Jewish tradition is a sign of mourning, is a sign of grief. You know, I don't care what I look like. I'm going to tear my clothes. I'm going to tear my shirt. And then what he does, besides doing that, he doesn't just tear his clothes. He covers himself with sackcloth, and he goes to the house of the Lord. He goes to the temple. And he sent. Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest. These are all the people who had gone out to Rabshakeh, who had heard what Rabshakeh had told them from, from uh, Sennacherib. And he sends them, and he tells them to put on sackcloth, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, the day, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of death and there is no strength to bring them forth. So it's an interesting metaphor that he uses there. It's a mother in labor who's been laboring so long and now she has no strength left. And during that time, of course, obviously, they did not have medicines that would cause the birth to continue. So it's a great metaphor for where they are. They have no, nothing to do. A child's going to die in the womb. Which is a great tragedy. So what Hezekiah is doing, Hezekiah is getting real with God. He is doing what he should do. He's doing what he probably should have done from the start. And that is to go to the house of the Lord in humbleness. Instead of going to all these other nations, he should have done what God had wanted him to do from the start. And what God wants us to do when we are at the end of our rope, when when we have exhausted all the possibilities, he wants us to go beforehand, but, you know, we're humans. And what do we do? We try to fix it all ourselves the whole time. We try to fix everything ourselves. Or we try to ignore it. Pretend it isn't there. Until we get to the point where we can't ignore it anymore. And God wants us to come to him. See, what Hezekiah understands is that the relationship that he has with Sennacherib and the Assyrians is not what matters. I want you to understand the relationship that the officials in our government have with other governments in the world do not matter. That's not what's important. What's important is their relationship with God because that should drive everything. And if you look at what our nation does 9 times out of 10, you can tell they don't ex- they're not exactly in a good relationship with God. What matters most is our relationship with the king of heaven. He Hezekiah knows he has to go to God. Now, I want you to understand that this is not Hezekiah just being superficially optimistic. He's not saying, "Well, you know, I, I've exhausted all the other possibilities. I guess I gotta go to God." Because he comes to him, he comes to him humbly. He tears his clothes. He's humbling himself. And then he sends his officials to Isaiah. He, he he wants to hear from God. At that time, normally God did not speak to people. He didn't speak to him through his word like he does now. The Holy Spirit wasn't actually as active as he is today. In fact, the Holy Spirit never, very seldom would enter anybody. The Holy Spirit would be around them. We have places in Scripture where the Holy Spirit's around somebody. So so God would speak through certain men. Certain prophets would come and speak for God. Sometimes the king would send for the prophet. Nine times out of ten they didn't because they probably didn't want to hear what the prophet had to say. Because the prophet didn't always bring good news. But the prophet would speak for God. So Hezekiah is asking, I want to hear from God. He's sitting in the temple and, and he's praying to God. He's humbling himself before God. He's showing God that I'm humbling myself, but I also want to hear from you, God. See, Hezekiah's message to God is a message of humble honesty. He knows that the trouble that they're in is their own fault. Don't we all know that? The trouble that I get myself into is my own fault. I try to blame it on everybody else. I try to blame it on somebody that did something to me. It's In reality, it's my own fault. I have no one to hold accountable but me. So that's why Hezekiah has gone to the temple. He knows it's his fault. He knows it's Judah's fault. They failed to live up as proof of God's reality. That's why they were chosen. That's why they're there. They are there to show the world that this is what it means to live for the one creator God. They were to be the priests to the nations. Like I've said this before when Jesus tore the temple up. What does he say? My house is to be a house of prayer for who? The nations. Not just the Jews. They were to be a, this. They were the, this. I'm going to set you as an example of what it means to live for God, and they weren't doing it. Guess what, folks? That's us. God created the church to set an example to the world of what it means to live for God, and many times we don't. They have not. Israel was not faithful to Yahweh, and now God has to deliver them at least he, he's going to, we know that, but Hezekiah now realizes that God, it's only God, God is the only one who can deliver them. And this deliverance is going to be the result, not a result of them being God's chosen people, it's a result of repentance. See, for us, Scripture has told us what because of what Jesus has done, we too can turn to God in our time of need. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 4, the writer who I always say is Paul, or at least Paul wrote part of it. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. We don't we don't have this high priest who has to make sacrifices every day for himself before he can enter the holy of holies. No, we have the high priest who's already made the sacrifice, Jesus, the Son of God. And let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he was here. He, he, He was tempted. He was human. He felt pain. But one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need." Paul's saying we don't have to think about it. We don't have to have a high priest who says to make a sacrifice for himself because he already did. Uh, We can draw close to God in our time of need. We can enter into his courts and we can ask him and we can humbly come to him. But it takes repentance. You have to realize that you've made the mistakes that you've made and you have to come to him repenting of those. You have to ask him to forgive you. You have to confess those sins to him. You know, we can't just reach into our pocket and I'm not gonna no, that's not a lucky rabbit's foot. We can't just reach into our pocket and pull out a lucky rabbit's foot and we can't treat God that way. Oh God, please give me you know, please save me. No, that it's that's not what it's about. It's about having a relationship with him and actually being able to go to Him and say, I'm sorry, Lord, I know I should have come to you first. I didn't. And now I've really screwed it up. Help me get through this. Help me figure this out. I'm not, and believe me, I'm not going to promise you that God's going to do what he did for Hezekiah and for the Judites, but He'll get you through it. He'll walk you through it. We have to approach Him humbly, though, with repentance. James writes in James 4, he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, which means clean yourself. Repent. He's not talking about, you know. It's not a sanitary thing. I've got to wash my hands before I go and and, and go to God. No, he's talking about cleanse your hands. Your hands are the things that do the work of the devil. So he cleansed them. Repent. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And that's what Hezekiah is doing. And that's what he's telling his officials to do. And here's what he says when he tells them to go to Isaiah. Because he tells them, go. This is a day of distress. But he goes on, he says, in verse 4 of 37, he says, It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Obviously, you and I know that God knows everything. That God heard what Rabshakeh said. And had already known before Rabshakeh said it what Rabshakeh was going to say. But Hezekiah is saying, maybe God will hear that. Because it wasn't us that he offended, but it was you, Lord. It was you. You were the one who was offended. He, he He doesn't even ask God to save them. He doesn't say, Lord, Save us. He says he's mocked you. He knows that they're getting what they deserve. But what he wants to do, he's he's asking Isaiah to pray to God that Rabshakeh will be rebuked for what he said about God. He was blasphemous, saying God can't do something. And then he says, pray for the remnant. That's kind of interesting that he says, pray for the remnant that is left. He's basically saying, we know we're going to get destroyed. There's going to be some of us left. Pray for them. Don't pray for us that are being destroyed. He does not ask for salvation. He asks that God would, God's, that God would, would actually defend himself and then also pray for those, take care of those who are left after, after the Assyrians have come in and completely destroy Jerusalem. He knows they're getting what they deserve. How does God respond? Isn't, I just got to say, it's, it's amazing. Many times, we, we have what we think we want from God, but he doesn't always do what we think he should do. Sometimes he goes way beyond it. This is what happens when the officials from Hezekiah get to Isaiah and tell him these things. When the servants of the king Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord. Understand, this was a prophet saying, thus says the Lord. When, the, when a true prophet says, thus says the Lord, thus, that's what God said. We must be careful today when we hear someone say, thus saith the Lord, unless it's saying what scripture says. There are a lot of false prophets out there today that will say, thus says the Lord. And it's them saying it, not God. But it says, thus says the Lord. Say to your master, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men and the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So what's God's response? Does he tell Hezekiah, rally the troops, I'm going to use you, and I'm going to go out, we're going to defeat them, you're going to take care of them, they're going to be gone. No. What does God do? God says, I'm going to be a little more subtle. I'm going I'm to kind of fly under the radar and I'm going to put... I'm going to put a feeling in those men who said those things. And they're going to hear a rumor. And it's going to be strong enough that it's going to pull them away. Because see, see, God is doing something. You know, we, It's very easy when God does something and when he uses us to do it for us to take the glory. God's, God's saying, no, I'm going to do something that only I can get glory for. So he puts a thought into the Assyrians to head back to Assyria. Because, see, God is all about His own glory. It, it, it's important that you and I learn this. We need to understand that God is about His glory, not ours. As, as sinners, we, we constantly are exchanging God's glory for images and for things that we think will bring us glory. It makes us serve these other things whether it's possessions or whether it's jobs or money or likes on Facebook or followers or pornography, food, whatever it is. We think these things are going to make us feel better and bring us glory. When in reality, we need to be serving God. We need to be doing what He wants that brings Him glory, not us glory. Now, as part of our sanctification, you know, we're being healed. See, sanctification is what happens when you've you've trusted in God and you've repented. God begins, the Holy Spirit begins to work on you. And what he does, he starts to change us to try to help us to get rid of those impulses for self-glorification. And by God's grace, we we become more God-centered and less me-centered, less self-centered. And in that process, God is doing that. Why? For his glory. And we should be striving for that. So we see what happens here in verse 8. Then Rabshaqah returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning. Terhaka, king of Cush, he has sent out a fight to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Syria. That is a pretty boastful claim. Don't, even your God is not strong enough to stop me. More blasphemy. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have you, have, have the gods of the nations delivered them? Well, of course not, because they were not gods. Well, they, They're Elohim, but they're not God the Creator. They're not Yahweh. They are the lesser gods. The na- nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rasaph. And the people of Eden who were were in Telasar, where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of of Zapharvum, the king of Hena, and the king of Iva? See what's happening is he has heard that there's an army coming from Cush, which is Egypt. There's an army coming, so I need to go deal with them. So I'm not going to deal with you now, Hezekiah. I'm going to go deal with them, but I'm going to get you still. Don't don't think you're off the hook. Don't let your God tell you that I won't get you too. Whose glory is Sennacherib after? His own. It's a pretty brash statement. He's doubling down on the blasphemy. But see, God has already assured Hezekiah that Sennacherib not going to be a problem anymore. He's not going to be a problem But see, Sennacherib in reality has now, in a very pervasive way, in a very perverse way, shown us the question that we have to ask ourselves. Do we stake our lives on the truthfulness of God's word? God makes promises. Are we staking our life on that? God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Christ said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Do we stake our promise? Do we believe that he's always with us? He's made promises about that we will be with him for eternity. That Jesus says, "I'll come again." Do we believe in that? Are we living our lives that way? Are we living our lives based upon the promises of God? Are we living our lives based upon the false promises and the blasphemy of this world? It was it was one of the things that concerned me the most in the last two years, is the amount of fear that I saw in Christians. I'm like, are you telling me that God can't pick the day that you're going to die and keep you alive until that day? I mean, don't be foolish, but don't be fearful. The Apostle John tells us in his epistles in 1 John 5, 4, it says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is a victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. See, I, I think today we live as if the world is overcoming us. We we feel it, don't you? Don't you? All the you know, if you watch the news, look at all the garbage that's going on, all the bad things happening in the world, and we think we feel this weight upon our shoulders about, oh my gosh, all this stuff is going on. Believe me, I, and I watch a lot of stuff. I am constantly watching videos about what's going on in the world. But the amazing thing about it is is as I'm looking at it and watching it, I sit and I say, you fools. Don't you know God's going to take care of all this? And I try to see God working in these things in the world. But it's very easy for us to, to get so overburdened by what's going on around us that it starts to weaken our faith. We need to strengthen our faith because it is our faith our faith in Jesus Christ that brings us victory over the world. So Do we live by this truth? Is our faith in Christ, and what he has done for us, is that driving our lives? Are we, or are we living in fear of what's going on in the world? Hezekiah gets Sennacherib's message, and and what does he do? He takes that message to the Lord, because it was in writing. So he takes it. It says in verse 14, He says, And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers. He read it. And Hezekiah, what does he do? The first thing he does is he takes it to God, and he lays it out in front of God. He spreads it out before him. Now why does he do that? Because, again, God is all-knowing. God knows what they wrote. How does he do that? He has given it to God. He's saying, here, see what they said? It's yours. You take care of it. That's what we need to do. We need to lay our burdens down before God. Allow him to take care of them. And yes, many times he comes back to us and says, listen, this is what you need to do. You need need to go and you need to apologize. And, and, And you need to say you're sorry for what you did. But, Lord, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> Eat crow if you have to. Apologize. Because you need to love them like I love you. Or you need to do this. You need to change this. And sometimes God says, I'm going to change everybody around you. Whatever he decides to do. But we have to lay it before him. He takes it to God. He's going a little bit deeper into God. He's getting more real with God. Look at his prayer in verse 16 through 20. He says, "O Lord of hosts, this is a this, this term. This Lord of hosts is a reference to the host of heaven, the Benai Elohim, the sons of God. We see in Deuteronomy 32, and we see in the book of Job, and we see." We see it in many different places in scripture. Jesus, God is the Lord of them. He is the Lord Creator. He's the one who sits on the main throne. He is He calls His counsel, which is the host, but He is the Lord of them. God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. You are the you are the God, you alone, all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Everything belongs to Him. Incline your ear, which means listen, O Lord. Listen to me, and hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands. Sennacherib's not lying, he's done all these things. We know that. And have cast their gods into the fire. Why? For they were no gods, but the works of men's hands of wood and stone therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from His hand. It's the first time He's, and it's all this time, the first time He's actually asking God to save them. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. Now look, that's what He says. The reason why we want you, it's not because I'm scared to die. It's not because I'm afraid to go through pain and suffering and torture. This is what He says. Lord, I want you to save us so that the world will know that you are God. He is all about God's glory, just like God is all about God's glory. And that is how we should be. Hezekiah realizes, like we need to do, is that it's not about us. It's not about him. It's not about Jerusalem. It's not about Judah. It's not about Israel. It's about God's glory and God's glory alone. It's not about Sennacherib and what he can and can't do. It's about God. God. This is a this is a different way of praying. This is not something that we normally do. The, when we when we pray, when 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 somebody calls and says that they have a prayer request, I, I pray for them. I say, Lord, give them strength and blah blah blah. I'll be honest with you, I I never really think to pray so that your glory may shine around them. I do sometimes, but not all the time. But that should be something we pray all the time. Lord, please. We ask that that, that Bob, is, Bob is in the hospital and, and, and John's in the hospital and, and, and Mary and Frank are having marital problems, Lord. But I ask that you step into those things and that you show your glory so that you do things so that your glory spreads around and that everyone sees that it's because of God that they are healed. Or, Lord, if, if you do take someone, that they know that this person was a believer in God and that God saved them and that your glory spread because of their death. That should be our prayer. It's a different way of praying. Hezekiah realizes the meaning of his life. His existence, he is there to what? To glorify God. Guess why we're here? To glorify God. He's not using God like some little totem or that's going to help him achieve his means or some lucky rabbit's foot. He doesn't pray for God to save them so that, you know for his glory, for the glory of his children, or himself. He, he, he wants God to be gloried. This is how we need to pray. We must see our lives the same way that Hezekiah sees his life. The purpose of our life is to bring glory to God in all that we do. We're not here to play in some sandbox while we create a world and a life for ourselves and for our posterity, for our children. But we are to live as proof that God saves sinners. God's not there to be our dream answer. He's there to display his glory in our salvation. And when our lives are lived this way, we will be Glorified. That's what it says in First Peter. First Peter 4, it says, the end of all things is at hand. Hmm. could be said today. We are living, we are living in the days when people will not stand truthful preaching. They will not stand the word of God. They want things that tickle their ears. We're living in those days today. He says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Huh. It's interesting. He's saying, <laughs> be humble so God hears you. Don't be self-seeking because God won't hear prayers that are self-seeking. Well, he'll hear them. He just won't answer them. He says, above all, keep loving one another. Earnestly, which means intentionally, with earnestness, with passion. Above all, keep loving one earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I know Thanksgiving is coming. We gotta be with family. You know, we kind of grumble sometimes when our families come around because we gotta deal with our crazy relatives. Yeah. We should be do it without grumbling. <laughs> Not always easy. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. God has given us all gifts, all things that we can do. Use it by serving others. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ. Hmm. Old Testament, God glorifies himself. We are to glorify him. New Testament. God glorifies himself, we are to glorify him in what we do. So that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, what Hezekiah has come to realize is, and that we have to understand is ultimately that, that, you know, God's going to deal with the world. He's going to deal with all of it. I, I don't have to. I don't have to save the world. I don't have to save you. I have to present you the gospel. I have to present the word of God. It's up to the Holy Spirit to convict people. I'm, if if we, we had the had the Go Tell ministry um, um, seminar last Saturday, you know, we learned how to share the gospel. We did not learn how to change people's hearts. It's not my job. My job is to share the gospel with somebody. God's going to deal with the world. The world and all its power is not against us. It is against God. I watch the things that are going on in this world, and I'm like, I can see the evil behind it. I see it. I see the evil behind COVID. I see the evil behind this war in Ukraine. I see the evil behind all the things that our government is doing with the FBI being corrupt, and and the whole government being corrupt, really. And the people in power who are using their power for evil rather than good. And I know what's behind them. I see it. I sense it it's not against us it's against god evil is against god and he's the evil uses us as a pawn to get back at god and because of that see it's not human power that we need what we need is god ephesians paul tells us in ephesians 6 he says for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers which is a is a term used in scripture for the spirit realm, the rulers in the spirit realm, the heavenly host, the fallen sons of God, against the authorities, another term, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, you and I need to be God-centered because it's good for us. It means that God is not responding to us based upon what we deserve, because what we deserve is death, He's proving what a good Savior He is by saving us. See, happiness is God being God to us. We have to stop praying. You know, Lord, make my whatever you want to call it better. You know, Lord, make my wife better. Help, Lord, make my children better. Lord, make my neighbor better. Make my spouse better. Make my kids. Make my boss, my co-workers. Make our government better. We have to stop praying like this because it's only going to make us frustrated because they're not going to do it because they're not listening to God. Because God's about His glory. Our prayer should be, Lord, I know that our government, whether it's state, federal, whatever, don't always listen to you. But I pray that in your way, you're able to still be glorified through no matter what they do. Lord, I know that I struggle with this person. Lord, I know that my my spouse is probably, you know, we're struggling right now. I pray, Lord, that you would help us so that we can glorify you. Lord, I know that I don't think the way I think all the, should all the time. Help me to glorify you. We need to start praying that God would be God to us. Pray that our problems, our lives would show the world that God saves sinners. Paul told the church of Philippi, he says, as is my eager expectation, hope that I will not at all be, be at all ashamed, but that you, that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. He's saying, I just always want me to honor God. No matter what I do, I want to always honor God in my body, either by life or by death. If we trust God's goodness enough to pray for His glory, is manifest in our lives, He'll give us everything we need. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And in reality, I think the more anxious we are, the more we take away from our life. <laughs> and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, God's not telling us we're not supposed to work hard. He's not telling us we're not supposed to have jobs to take care of ourselves. He tells us we're not supposed to worry about it. We're supposed to take action when we're supposed to take action. But it's not supposed to control the lives so much that we worry about it. He says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will they not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek His kingdom, which is to glorify God. Seek God's glory. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We have enough trouble for today. Don't worry about tomorrow. See, how we how we respond to challenges in our life will either confirm what the world already thinks, that Christianity is just some some stupid way of thinking about things or it's just a selfish power trip, or it'll show them that Christianity is an almighty, all-powerful God loving us enough to save us from ourselves and save us from sin. Because when we do that, we find everything that we need, every desire we have in the glory of Jesus Christ. So we need to remove ourselves from the center of our lives. And we need to put the cross in its place. Because that's what it's about. It's about Jesus. On that night, Jesus was trying to show his disciples... I'm doing this for you. I have to. I have to do this. I have to do all of this for the glory of my Father. So we celebrate that. As we take communion, we celebrate the fact that it's not about us. It's about the man who who, who was God in the flesh. Who willingly went to the cross? Who who died so that you and I no longer have to make sacrifices of lambs and goats? Because he paid the price, the ultimate price. And now all we have to do is we have to confess our sins to him. We have to repent, and that's hard. I know. I do it a lot because I'm I still make mistakes. We have to repent. And then we have to live for His glory, because when He returns, He's going to lift us up in glory. We will receive glory. But while we're here, we need... Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're watching on YouTube, please like this video, as it will help in spreading this message into the global online community. Please consider subscribing to our page so that you will receive notices when we post new messages. If you're watching this on Rumble, please hit the Rumble button for this video so that the gospel can be spread into the What Rumble community. Also, consider subscribing to our Rumble channel. You can also listen to our podcast on Amazon Music and Apple Podcasts. We hope you have a blessed day.